Section 8 of Six Years with the Texas Rangers, 1875 to 1881. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Andrew Frame. Six Years with the Texas Rangers, 1875 to 1881 by James B. Gillette. Service with Reynolds, the Intrepid, Part 1. As soon as Sergeant Reynolds was commissioned first lieutenant, he was placed in command of Company E, then stationed in Coleman County, but immediately ordered to Limpasas. At this time, Captain Sparks resigned the command of Company C, and this company was also ordered to report to Lieutenant Reynolds at the same town. Late in August, the two commands went into camp at Hancock Springs. Major Jones then authorized Lieutenant Reynolds to pick such men as he desired from these two companies for his own company, and either discharge or transfer the remainder to other commands. No other officer in the battalion, I believe, was ever accorded this privilege. Lieutenant Reynolds had a week or ten days in which to make his selection, so he studied the muster rolls of the companies carefully. He had ranged under such great captains as Perry, D.W. Roberts, Neil Coldwell, and with Major Jones himself. He knew what qualities were needed in a good ranger and made his selections accordingly. From Old Company A, Reynolds selected C.L. Neville, Tom Gillespie, Shape Rogers, Jack Martin, John Gibbs, W.T. Clements, and four others whose names I do not now remember. These were the scouts that had helped him capture the Horals, and naturally were his first choice. From Company E came Dick Ware, who one year later killed the noted train robber Sam Bass, then served Mitchell County as its first sheriff for many years, and finally became United States Marshal for the Western District of Texas under President Cleveland's administration. Henry Thomas, Miller Moreland, George Arnett, and other Company E boys were selected. Henry Maltimore, Ben and Doc Carter, Bill Derrick, Chris Connor, Henry McGee, Abe Anglin, J.W. Warren, Dave Ligon, Low Hughes, George Hogg Hughes, and others were picked from Company C. When he exhausted the two companies, Reynolds turned to General Jones and said, There's a ranger down on the Rio Grande in Neil Coldwell's company that I want. Who is it? asked the general. Private Jim Gillette. You shall have him, promised General Jones. I will send an order to Captain Coldwell tonight to have Gillette report to you here. It was late in the evening when Company A's mail came in from Frio Town, but Captain Coldwell sent for me as soon as General Jones's order arrived and told me that I must leave the company next morning and report to the Adjutant General at Austin. I was nonplussed, for I did not know what the order meant. Out on the frontier where we were then operating, we seldom read newspapers or heard what the other companies were doing, so I did not even know that Reynolds had captured the Horrell Boys and had been commissioned to command Company E. The following morning, I bade Captain Coldwell and the Company A boys goodbye and started on my long ride to Austin. As I jogged along, I asked myself many hundred times why I was ordered to report at Austin. And boy-like, it made me nervous and uneasy. It took me two days to reach San Antonio and three more to get to Austin. I arrived in the latter town just at nightfall, but I was at the Adjutant General's office as soon as it was open next morning. Presently, General Jones entered with some officers of the state militia. He shook hands with me and invited me to be seated, saying he had some business to attend to for the moment. 
It was probably an hour before the officers left, and the general could turn to me. He very kindly inquired as to my trip, and asked about Captain Coldwell and the company. He then told me about the arrest of the Harrell boys and Sergeant Reynolds' commission as First Lieutenant Commanding Company E. Vice Lieutenant Foster resigned. He explained that Reynolds had requested that I be attached to his command and ordered me to report to my new commander in Lampasas without delay. I excused myself at once and lost no time in getting my horse out of the livery stable and resuming my way. A great load was lifted from my mind and I was about as happy as a boy could be. I sang and whistled all the way to Liberty Hill, 30 miles from Austin. The following day, about 2 p.m., I rode into Reynolds' camp at Hancock Springs. I attracted some attention as I rode in, for I wore a big Mexican hat mounted with silver and a buckskin jacket fringed from shoulder to elbow with a bunch of flowers braided in highly colored silk on its back. On my heels were enormous Mexican spurs. I never saw a ranger sent to the Rio Grande for the first time that did not rig himself out in some such outlandish attire, only to discard it a few weeks later, never to wear it again. I was no exception, and I think every man in camp tried on my hat. Lieutenant Reynolds selected C.L. Neville for first sergeant, Henry W. McGee as second sergeant, and J.W. Warren and L.W. Connor, first and second corporals, respectively. On September 1, 1877, the company was sworn in. The new command was the most formidable body of men I had ever seen. Our commander, Lieutenant Reynolds, was over six feet tall and weighed probably 175 pounds. He was a very handsome man, a perfect blonde with steel blue eyes and a long light mustache. At that time, he was about 30 years of age, vigorous in mind and body and had a massive determination to succeed as a ranger. His mind was original, bold, profound, and quick, with a will that no obstacle could daunt. He was the best ranger in the world. There was never another like him. The lieutenant was a native of Missouri and was always known as Major or Mage Reynolds. It was said that Reynolds, though a mere boy, had served with the Confederates in the latter part of the Civil War. He was one of a party that captured a troop of Federal cavalry, the Major of which was well supplied with clothing. The captors, however, were very scantily clad, and Reynolds appropriated the Major's uniform, hence his nickname, Mage. In later years, when I had grown more intimate with him and was probably closer to him than any other, I mentioned this story. He neither affirmed nor denied it, declaring he was a Missourian by birth, a bootmaker by trade, and that his early history could interest no one. First Sergeant Neville was six feet and one inch in height and weighed 185 pounds. All the non-commissioned officers were at least six feet tall and built in proportion, and many of the privates were from five feet 11 inches to six feet in height. I was probably the lightest man in the company, being only 5 feet 9 inches and weighing but 140 pounds. When the company's roster was complete, Lieutenant Reynolds had but 28 men, lacking two of his full complement of 30. The company was then ordered to Austin, but before being assigned to its position on the frontier, the lieutenant enlisted John and Will Bannister, two celebrated frontiersmen. They were old cowboys, splendid shots, and well acquainted with every part of Kimball, Menard, Mason, and Kerr counties, in which Company E was destined to operate. In appearance and ability, this company compared favorably with any 30 rangers ever sent to the Texas frontier. Nearly every member of the company had had more or less experience as an officer, 
and all were exceedingly fine marksmen. Sergeant Henry McGee had been Marshal of Waco and had figured in several pistol duels in that city. Dave Ligon, the oldest man in the command, had been a Confederate soldier and had served with General Forrest's cavalry. In the summer of 1877, Lieutenant Armstrong of Captain Hall's company, assisted by Detective Jack Duncan of Dallas, Texas, captured the notorious John Wesley Hardin. It has been said that Texas, the largest state in the Union, has never produced a real world's champion at anything. Surely such critics overlooked Hardin, the champion desperado of the world. His life is too well known in Texas for me to go into detail, but according to his own story, which I have before me, he killed no fewer than 27 men, the last being Charlie Webb, deputy sheriff of Brown County, Texas. So notorious had Hardin become that the state of Texas offered $4,000 reward for his capture. Hardin left Texas and at the time of his capture was in Florida. His captors arrested and overpowered him while he was sitting in a passenger coach. In September 1877, Sheriff Wilson of Comanche County, in whose jurisdiction Hardin had killed Webb, came to Austin to convey the prisoner to Comanche for trial. Wilson requested the governor for an escort of rangers. Lieutenant Reynolds' company, being in Austin at the time, was ordered to accompany Wilson and protect Hardin from mob violence. This was the first work assigned to Company E under its new commander. The day we left Austin, between one and 2,000 people gathered about the Travis County Jail to see this notorious desperado. The rangers were drawn up just outside the jail, and Henry Thomas and myself were ordered to enter the prison and escort Hardin out. Heavily shackled and handcuffed, the prisoner walked very slowly between us. The boy that had sold fish on the streets of Austin was now guarding the most desperate criminal in Texas. It was glory enough for me. At his trial, Hardin was convicted and sentenced to 25 years in the penitentiary. He appealed his case and was returned to Travis County for safekeeping. The verdict of the trial court was sustained, and one year later, in September 1878, Lieutenant Reynolds' company was ordered to take Hardin back to Comanche County for sentence. There was no railroad at Comanche at the time, so a detachment of rangers, myself among them, escorted Hardin to the penitentiary. There were 10 or 12 indictments still pending against him for murder in various counties, but they were never prosecuted. Hardin served 17 years on his sentence, and while in prison studied law. Governor Hogg pardoned him in 1894 and restored him to full citizenship. In transmitting him the governor's pardon, Judge W.S. Fly, Associate Justice of the Court of Appeals, wrote Hardin as follows. Dear Sir, Enclosed I send you a full pardon from the governor of Texas. I congratulate you on its reception and trust that it is the day of dawn of a bright and peaceful future. There is a time to retrieve a lost past. Turn your back upon it with all its suffering and sorrow and fix your eyes upon the future with the determination to make yourself an honorable and useful member of society. The hand of every true man will be extended to assist you in your upward course, and I trust that the name of Hardin will be in the future associated with the performance of deeds that will ennoble his family and be a blessing to humanity. Did you ever read Victor Hugo's masterpiece, Les Miserables? If not, you ought to read it. It paints in graphic words the life of one who had tasted the bitterest dregs of life's cup, but in his Christian manhood rose about it almost like a god and left behind him a path luminous with good deeds. With the best wishes for your welfare and happiness, I am, yours very truly, 
W.S. Fly. Despite all the kind advice given him by eminent lawyers and citizens, Hardin was unequal to the task of becoming a useful man. He practiced law for a time in Gonzales, then drifted away to El Paso, where he began drinking and gambling. On August 19, 1895, Hardin was standing at a bar shaking dice when John Selman, constable of precinct number one, approached him from behind and, placing a pistol to the back of Hardin's head, blew his brains out. Though posing as an officer, Selman was himself an outlaw and a murderer of the worst kind. He killed Hardin for the notoriety it would bring him, and nothing more. After delivering Hardin to the sheriff of Travis County in 1877, Lieutenant Reynolds was ordered to Kimball County for duty. Of all the counties in Texas at that time, Kimball was the most popular with outlaws and criminals, for it was situated south of Menard County on the north and south Llano Rivers, with cedar, pecan, and mesquite timber in which to hide, while the streams and mountains furnished abundance of fish and game for subsistence. Up on the South Llano lived old Jimmy Dublin. He had a large family of children, most of them grown. The eldest of his boys, Dick, or Richard as he was known, and a friend, Ace Lankford, killed two men at a country store in Lankford's Cove, Coriel County, Texas. The state offered $500 for the arrest of Dublin and the county of Coriel an additional $200. To escape capture, Dick and his companion fled west into Kimball County. While I was working as cowboy with Joe Franks in the fall of 1873, I became acquainted with the two murderers, for they attached themselves to our outfit. They were always armed and constantly on the watch out for fear of arrest. Dublin was a large man, stout, dark-complected, and looked more like the bully of a prize ring than the cowman he was. I often heard him say he would never surrender. While cowhunting with us, he discovered that the naturally brushy and tangled county of Kimball would offer shelter for such as he, and he persuaded his father to move out into that county. Dublin had not lived long in Kimball County before another son, Del Dublin, killed Jim Williams, a neighbor. Thus, the two Dublin boys were on the dodge charged with murder. They were supposed to be hiding near their father's home. Bill Allison, Stark Reynolds, and a number of bandits, horse and cattle thieves and murderers were known to be in Kimball County, so Lieutenant Reynolds was sent with his company to clean them up. It was late in October 1877 before the company reached its destination and camped on the North Llano River below the mouth of Bear Creek. As soon as our horses had rested and camp was fully established for the winter, we began scouting. Several men wanted on minor charges were captured. We then raided Luke Stone's ranch, which was about 10 miles from our camp, and captured Dell Dublin. He was fearfully angry when he found escape impossible. He tore his shirt bosom open and dared the rangers to shoot him. While he was being disarmed, his elder brother Dick rode out of the brush and came within gunshot of the ranch before he discovered the presence of the rangers. He turned his horse quickly and made his escape, though the rangers pursued him some distance. When Dick learned that the Bannister boys and myself were with Lieutenant Reynolds' company and hot on his trail, he declared he would whip us with a quirt as a man would a dog if he ever came upon us, for he remembered us as beardless boys with Joe Frank's cow outfit. However, despite his threat, he never attempted to make it good, but took very good care to keep out of our way until the fatal January 18, 1878. There was no jail in Kimball County. So with a detachment of rangers, I took Del Dublin and our other prisoners to Llano County lockup. Shortly after, Reynolds selected Sergeant McGee, Tom Gillespie, Dick Harris, and Aunt Tim McCarthy 
and made a scout into Menard County. He also had with him his Negro cook, George, to drive his light wagon. On the return toward Bear Creek, the scout camped for the night at Fort McCavitt. At that time, each frontier post had its chihuahua or scab town, a little settlement with gambling halls, saloons, and the like, to catch the soldiers' dollars. At Fort McCavick were many discharged soldiers, some of them Negroes from the 10th Cavalry. These blacks had associated with white gamblers and lewd women until they thought themselves the equals of white men and became mean and overbearing. On this particular night, these Negro ex-soldiers gave a dance in Scabtown, and our Negro, George, wanted to go. He was a light mulatto, almost white, but well thought of by all the boys in the company. He obtained Lieutenant Reynolds' permission to attend the dance and borrowed Tim McCarthy's pistol to carry to it. When George arrived at the dance, the ex-soldiers did not like his appearance, as he was allied with the Rangers, whom they despised. They jumped on George, took his pistol, and kicked him out of the place. The boys were all in bed when George returned and told McCarthy that the Negroes at the dance hall had taken his pistol from him. Lieutenant Reynolds was sleeping nearby and heard what George said. He raised up on his elbow and ordered Sergeant McGee to go with McCarthy and George and get the pistol. The Negro saw McGee coming and, closing the door, defied him to enter the dance hall. McGee was cool and careful. He advised the Negroes to return the pistol, but they refused, saying they would kill the first white-livered SOB that attempted to enter the house. The sergeant then stationed himself at the front door and ordered McCarthy to guard the back entrance of the place and sent George for the lieutenant. Reynolds hurried to the scene, taking with him Tom Gillespie and Dick Harrison. The lieutenant knocked on the door and told the blacks he was the commander of the rangers and demanded their surrender. They replied with an oath that they would not do so. Reynolds then ordered the house cleared of women and gave the Negroes just five minutes in which to surrender. Up to this time, the women had been quiet, but they now began to scream. This probably demoralized the Negro men. One of them poked McCarthy's pistol, muzzle foremost, out of a window. Here, come and get your damn pistol, he said. McCarthy, a new man in the service, stepped up and grasped it. The instant the Negro felt the touch of McCarthy's hand on the weapon, he pulled the trigger. The ball pierced McCarthy's body just above the heart, giving him a mortal wound. At the crack of the pistol, the Rangers opened fire through the doors and windows on the Negroes within the house. Reynolds and his men then charged the place, and when the smoke of battle cleared, they found four dead Negro men and a little Negro girl that had been killed by accident. Only one black escaped. He was hidden under a bed, and as the rangers came in, made a dash to safety under cover of darkness. McCarthy died the following day and was buried near Old Fort McCavitt. Negro George fought like a tiger and won the boys' praise. A few days afterward, the sheriff of Tom Green County, following the trail of a bunch of stolen cattle from San Angelo, came into our camp. Lieutenant Reynolds sent Sergeant Neville and a scout of rangers with the sheriff. The trail led over to the South Lano, where the cattle were recovered. While scouting around the herd, Sergeant Neville discovered a man riding down the trail toward him. He and his men secreted themselves and awaited the stranger's approach. It was getting quite dark, and when the newcomer had ridden almost over the concealed rangers without noticing their presence, they rose up, presented their guns, and ordered him to halt. Yes, like hell, he exclaimed, and turning his horse dived into a cedar brake. A shower of bullets followed but failed to strike the fugitive. This was the notorious Dick Dublin with a $700 reward on his head. 
Sergeant Neville returned to camp with about 50 head of burnt cattle, but let the most notorious criminal in the county escape. Lieutenant Reynolds was disappointed at this and said he did not understand how four crack rangers could let a man ride right over them and then get away. He declared his Negro cook could have killed Dublin had he been in their place. This mortified the boys a great deal. The latter part of December 1877, Lieutenant Reynolds sent a scout out on Little Saline, Menard County. On Christmas Day, this detail had a running fight with four men. John Collins, the man who stole a yoke of oxen at Fredericksburg and drove them up to within two miles of our camp, was captured, as was also John Gray, wanted for murder in one of the eastern counties. Jim Pope Mason, charged with the murder of Rance Moore, was in this skirmish, but escaped. One cold morning, about the middle of January, Corporal Gillette, with Privates John and Will Bannister, Tom Gillespie, Dave Lykin, and Ben Carter, was ordered on a five-day scout. We saddled our horses and packed two mules. When all was ready, I walked over to Lieutenant Reynolds. He was sitting on a camp stool before his tent and seemed in a brown study. I saluted and asked for orders. Well, Corporal, he said after a moment's hesitation, it's a scout after Dick Dublin again. That man seems to be a regular Jonah to this company. He lives only ten miles from here and I have been awfully disappointed at not being able to effect his capture. It is a reflection on all of Company E. There's one thing sure. If I can't capture him, I will make life miserable for him. I will keep a scout in the field after him constantly. I then asked if he had any instructions as to the route I should travel. No, no, he replied. I rely too much on your judgment to hamper you with orders. After you are once out of sight of camp, you know these mountains and trails better than I do. Just go and do your best. If you come in contact with him... Don't let him get away. After riding a half mile from camp, the boys began inquiring about where we were going and who we were after. I told them, Dick Dublin. We quit the road and traveled south from our camp over to the head of Pack Saddle Creek. Here we turned down the creek and rounded up the Potter Ranch, but no one was at home, so we passed on into the Cedar Break without having been seen. On the extreme headwaters of the South Llano River, some cattlemen had built a large stock pen and were using it to confine wild cattle. This was far out beyond any settlement and probably 50 or 60 miles from our camp. I thought it possible that Dick Dublin might be hanging around the place, so we traveled through the woods most of the way to it. Here I found the cattlemen had moved. The scout had now been out two days, so we began our return journey. We traveled probably 25 miles on the third day. On the fourth day, I timed myself to reach the Potter Ranch about night. Old Man Potter, a friend and neighbor of Dublin's, lived here with two grown sons. It was known that Dublin frequented the place, and I hoped to catch him here unawares. About sundown, we were within a mile of the ranch. Here we unsaddled our horses and prepared to round up the house. If we met with no success, we were to camp there for the night. I left John Bannister and Ligon to guard camp, while Gillespie, Will Bannister, and Ben Carter with myself approached the ranch on foot. If I found no one there, I intended to return to our camp unseen and round up the ranch again the following morning. We had not traveled far before we discovered a lone man riding slowly down the trail to the Potter Ranch. We remained hidden and were able to approach within 50 yards of the house without being seen. We now halted in the bed of a creek for a short consultation. 
The one-room cabin had only a single door, and before it was a small wagon. The potters cooked out of doors, between the house and the wagon. We could see a horse tied to the south side of the vehicle, but could not see the campfire for the wagon and the horse. To our right, and about 25 steps away, Old Man Potter and one of his sons were unloading some hogs from a wagon into a pen. End of section 8